if we were white, if we were Irish, if we were Jewish, if we were Poles, if we had, in fact, in your mind, a frame of reference, our heroes would be your heroes too. Nat Turner would be a hero for you instead of a threat. Malcolm X might still be alive. It is that you can face, in some ways, the discontent of white people when they rise, they are heroes. And it, you know, everyone is very proud of brave little Israel, a state against which I have nothing. You know, I don't want to be misinterpreted. I'm not an anti-Semite. But you know, when the Israelis pick up guns, or the Poles, or the Irish, or any white man in the world mm -hmm. says, give me liberty or give me death, the entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, word for word, he is judged a criminal and treated like one, and everything possible is done to make an example of this bad nigger so there won't be any more like him. What does it say about a society that you and that society don't share the same heroes? That someone that wants what's best for you is deemed an enemy of the state? This isn't a situation that only Malcolm and Martin faced. We have a long list of black men and women who have made it their goal to see our people achieve complete economic and social justice, but were either killed, imprisoned, or had their characters assassinated before they could reach their goal. George Washington is no hero of mine, and neither is John F. Kennedy. As black people, we should see through how those who champion our immediate need for justice are treated by this government, how this government sees us. Now, in the clip from the great Jimmy Baldwin that kicked off this episode, he spoke of what happens when a black man makes the proclamation, give me liberty or give me death. But in this episode, I want to dive into the story of a black woman who made that proclamation. She's one of our living heroes, and her story gives us an amazing current example of how our true champions, and by that I mean black people who are for the immediate improvement of the black condition, are treated. My name is Baudelaire, and welcome to season two of The Soapbox. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others who believe she hides her crimes behind revolutionary rhetoric. Back in the 1970s, Asada Shakur was known as the soul of the self-styled Black Liberation Army, an armed group implicated in the killings of several police officers. In New Jersey, Governor Whitman has posted a $50,000 reward for her capture. Asada Shakur was born in Queens, New York in 1947 and spent her first 18 years in both New York and North Carolina. She went to City College of New York and it was there that she was exposed to black nationalist organizations and the greatest struggle to fight against black and female oppression in the United States. Now, before arriving on campus, Asada wasn't, as we'd say, woke at all. She was a black woman that knew racism existed, but didn't understand much about the context in which it existed. In an interview she did with the late Jill Noble, a legendary black reporter whose son Chris is actually a friend of mine. What up, Chris? Asada explains what she knew of black history and the thought process that went into her developed stance on Americanism. This clip and most of what you'll hear from Asada today is from an episode of Jill Noble's show, Like It Is, from the 80s. Before that, the only figure who had stood out was Harriet Tubman. You know, and it was Harriet Tubman, George Washington, Carver, and Booker T. Washington. That was my whole 
concept, my whole understanding of black history up until that time. And I really thought that Lincoln freed the slaves. I really thought that the Civil War was fought for slavery. And when I started to see the real picture of what happened to us as a people and really started to analyze what American history was all about, I began to look at things in, in a whole nother way and to see that, you know, it was a systemized, so this, this place called America has, the U.S. away, has systematically wiped out. Indians had systematically enslaved black people. And then after slavery was, was officially abolished, that the oppression didn't, didn't end. It just changed form. Members of an on-campus group called the Golden Drum Society familiarized her with black historical figures that resisted racial oppression and social violence. While on campus, she also began interacting with other activist groups and participated in student rights, anti-Vietnam War, and black liberation protests. Though Asada was named Joanne Chesimard at birth, she adopted a new name, Asada, which means she who struggles, Olubala, which means love for the people, Shakur, which means the thankful. When people hear the Shakur name, they typically think of Tupac Shakur. Asada is actually Tupac's godmother and was connected to his family through her friendship with fellow Black Panther Afini Shakur and Tupac's stepfather, Matulu Shakur. Asada was a former Black Panther and member of the Black Liberation Army when she was railroaded by the FBI's counterintelligence program and forced into exile in Cuba. That government program is what's most responsible for her situation today. Now, I just threw a lot at you, but first, let's look into what exactly COINTELPRO is. The counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, is a series of covert and illegal projects conducted by the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation aimed at surveilling, infiltrating, discrediting, and disrupting American political organizations. The head of the FBI and the father of COINTELPRO was a man named J. Edgar Hoover, who in my opinion is the devil in human form, simply for his outright and direct hatred for the black race, which was extreme no matter who you compare him to. J. Edgar Hoover was a psychopath. You see, Hoover feared the rise of a black messiah, who would be able to inspire the black masses to combat white supremacy in a more unified form than was currently underway. This is a man who called Martin Luther King, quote, the most dangerous Negro in the future of this nation, end quote. Hoover ordered around-the-clock surveillance of King, hoping to find evidence of communist influence or any type of sexual deviance. That is why we know about Martin Luther King's affairs. Hoover and the FBI even used this evidence of his affairs to try and blackmail Martin into killing himself. Hoover also had undercover agents and informants in most of the groups fighting for the improvement of the black condition. And these agents would help in the ultimate goal, which was the discrediting or neutralizing of black leaders. Fred Hampton, the great Black Panther leader, was killed by an operation that began with the help of an undercover FBI agent. William O'Neill gave the FBI and Chicago police the blueprints to Fred Hampton's apartment for their eventual raid that would end with the 21-year-old Hampton and Peora, Illinois Panther leader Mark Clark murdered. Police also seriously wounded four other Panther members as they shot into the apartment for seven minutes. Months later, a federal investigation showed that only one shot was fired by the Panthers and it was shot by accident, not hitting anybody. Police fired 82 to 99 shots. William O'Neill, the agent who infiltrated the Panthers and got close enough to Fred Hampton to provide the information to the FBI, spoke in an interview about his recruitment and his experience working with the Bureau to discredit the Panther leader. My recruitment by the FBI was very efficient, very simple, really. Um, I'd stolen a car and uh, went joyriding over the state limit. 
and um, they had a potential case against me, and I was looking for an opportunity to uh, work it off. And um, a couple of months later, that opportunity came when uh, uh, FBI agent Roy Mitchell asked me to uh, go down to the local office of the Black Panther Party and try to uh, gain membership. We tried to develop negative information to discredit him, just like we did uh, everybody else. We, meaning the FBI, I tried to come up with uh, signs of him doing drugs or, or something, and uh, never could. He was clean. He was dedicated. I've had private conversations with him. Uh, we got along pretty well. There's actually a couple of videos on YouTube from men who were admitted FBI informants from the civil rights era. I suggest you check them out. But that is how obsessed the FBI and by extension the government was with neutralizing the idea of the black messiah. I ask you again the question I did at the top of the episode. What does it say that this is the treatment that our champions were dealing with? But back to Asada. In the late 60s, Asada Shakur found out that almost all of what she had learned in school about African history was a lie. She would soon gain her own political awareness, and when looking for a group to join, she decided she would join the Black Panther Party. Asada explains why she joined in that same interview with Jill Noble. What was it about the Panthers that, that drew you? Well, I think, first of all, because um, I had already, by the time I joined the, the Black Panther Party, I had already begun to, to see that it was not a question of reform, that the whole, I basically had come to the conclusion that on every level, the U.S. government was an oppressive system run by and for rich people. And that there was no way that that was going to change because the whole system was based on oppression. That was how I felt. So that I was not... Um, interested in joining an organization that was um, interested in reforms, that was struggling for reforms. I wanted to join an organization, number one, that um, believed that the whole thing had to be changed, because that was what I, I believed. Number two, um, the Black Panther Party... Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, that, that a whole, a complete change, which is a revolution had to occur, that you could not be free under a, a, a system based on uh, racism, based on oppression, based on capitalism, based on imperialism, that nobody in the world can reform a system like that. It's never been done in history. And I don't think it will ever be done in history. The Panthers' central platform was their 10-point program. What you're about to hear is Black Panther leader Eldridge Cleaver explain that program and how one point in particular became the immediate focus. Uh, better housing, better education, a better dispensation of justice, better medical attention. Um, uh, we wanted black men to be exempted from uh, the draft military service in the war in Indochina. Uh, we wanted uh, an end to the exploitation of the black community by white capitalists. Later on, we just said capitalists, right? We um, wanted an end to uh, police brutality and the murder of black people by the police. That was point number seven. It turned out that 
we really didn't have time for anything but point number seven because once we uh, we implemented that particular point by patrolling the community and when the cops would come in in their cars and we would get behind them in our cars and we would be armed and when they stopped someone we'd stop and get out of our car and the law said that you had to stand 10 feet away and we would stand 10 feet away and if the cops got our line then we got our line and if they started shooting then we started shooting because we didn't feel that uh, there was any more room for playing around with the situation. You see, in American media, the injustice is usually hidden in the narrative. Black men protecting their community from an injustice they refused to allow continue were seen as the threats, and nationwide non-black people began to fear the idea of the Black Panthers. The most basic functions of the party, aside from the program, were the selling of the newspapers that kept the community up to date on the black struggle in America, Panthers activities, and the struggles of oppressed people all over the world. One of the most famous Panther programs was the Free Breakfast Program. The Free Breakfast for Children program was just that, a program in dozens of cities across the country that ensured black children started their day with a full breakfast, as they had recently been learned the impact a full stomach can have on a child trying to learn. Asada worked with this Free Breakfast program and fell in love with the interpersonal and community work. Now, a group with goals such as fundamentally changing the system and its treatment of darker-skinned people is definitely going to face some resistance from that system. But it's the way in which the Panthers were attacked which is so wicked. Because to have openly debated the Panthers' accusations of the system would have been impossible. The U.S. was and is a racist and capitalist country that is built on the backs of darker-skinned peoples and continues to marginalize and terrorize those darker-skinned peoples, not just within its borders, but all around the world. So, instead of openly attacking the party, the FBI decided it would be best to discredit and make the party appear as if it was imploding on its own. Though the average citizen of the country started to fear the Panthers as reckless thugs, Hoover knew the impact they were having and potentially could have if their message was allowed to spread and be understood by the masses of the people. Hoover began sending undercover agents like William O'Neill to infiltrate the Panthers in every city they operated in to keep close tabs on the group and disrupt activities whenever they could. Asada spoke about what it felt like being a Panther dealing with COINTELPRO in that Jill Noble interview. Strange things begin to happen around me that I couldn't put my hand on, I couldn't touch, you know. Um, like? Well, so many strange things would happen. We would get strange phone calls, strange packages, strange people would come into the office and have nervous breakdowns. I mean, it was one thing after another. Um, there was the leadership was under such pressure because at that time, you have to remember that the FBI had made the Black Panther Party the number one target of the COINTEL program. We didn't know anything about COINTEL Pro per se, but it was obvious that the government was attacking the party in every way possible. It was obvious that it was just something strange. You couldn't, I mean, for example, you could not, work was, became difficult to go and sell up the paper, for example. We would send people out and they would uh, stand on the corner and be selling papers and five minutes later they would be at the police station. Why are you at the police station? For threatening a police officer. How did you threaten a police officer? 
We didn't do anything. You saw the paper. It was uh, the cops word against the Panthers word, and the cops mm. would always win. So it was like um, in every aspect, it became difficult. The breakfast program came under attack for um, supposedly um, showing little kids cartoons. Um, that were racist, that was said all white people are horrible or, or something to that effect. Basically, that was the general idea. Later, we, we found out that those same cartoons were manufactured by the FBI, were inserted in uh, Panther papers and distributed. I mean, that was the kind of thing that went on. But we, at that time, we were up against something. It's like you're up against this wall, but you can't see it. You can't touch it. You you know that you're a target of, of the government's repression, but you don't know to the extent. We didn't realize the extent. The potential that Hoover saw in the Black Panther Party came from their community work and educational programs more than anything. He saw the trust that was being built through programs like the Free Breakfast Program and the conversations that were being had at those breakfast tables and in those kitchens. He saw the political education that was being gained in barbershops, hair salons, and everywhere black people congregated throughout the country. Black people knew the party was for them, and it only took a look at the news of the day to know that the country, by and large, wasn't. This mass understanding of their situation could lead black people to reassess their relationship with the racist and capitalist order that has been, even to this very day, keeping its boot on their necks. So to avoid this, Hoover would stop at nothing to stop the party. This next clip is from a documentary about Asada titled Eyes of the Rainbow. The Black Panther Party came under uh, the guns of the FBI, as did all of the uh, Black Liberation Movement. It didn't matter what positions you took. It mattered uh, that people related to those positions, that people understood what you were saying, that people supported you. And I think that uh, when J. Edgar Hoover and those who control the United States government understood how many young people uh, looked to the party for leadership, how many young people were inspired by uh, the Black Panther Party, how many young people supported the activities of the Black Panther Party. And it was, you know, people, just ordinary street people who, people, working people, mothers, grandmothers who would come to the office and bring clothes, come to the office and um, make donations. Um, so the, the government just perceived us as a threat because they understood that we were serious, they understood we were telling the truth, and they understood also that we were becoming a much more sophisticated Opposition. We were not just the piece of pie opposition, but that we wanted a real structural change in the United States. The Panthers also had an international agenda. As I said before, America plays a hand in political activities all over the world. A common tool used by America to assert its international influence is economic sanctions to hurt an economy. An economic sanction is pretty much like an economic blackout meant to withhold trade from a certain country to hurt their economy. The U.S. media typically takes a country after they've been crippled by sanctions and then upholds them and their system of government as ineffective and repressive. Again, the injustice here is hidden in the narrative. America is the largest economy in the world. 
If America decides to stop playing ball with a certain country, that country will probably face similar hostilities from America's allies. And then you're left with a pretty unstable economy because globalization requires that you're a part of the system of global trade to be successful. Now, the economic blockade can be a useful tool to combat oppression, but this system becomes hypocritical when you see that not only has America not placed sanctions on some of the world's most oppressive regimes, but America has actually aided in their getting to power. In this clip, Asada explains which international acts specifically by the U.S. government at that time the Panthers opposed. We took very clear positions. We opposed the United States uh, government intervention in Vietnam. We opposed uh, the blockade against Cuba and all of the other U.S. policies that were hostile to the Cuban Revolution. We opposed uh, the United States policies of supporting apartheid in South Africa. Uh, we opposed all of the U.S. government's imperialist policies against all progressive people's struggles. In 1971, Asada would leave the Black Panther Party. Asada left the party because she felt the party's energy was too machismo to deal with the nuanced issues the black community faced. In her autobiography, Asada, which I highly suggest you check out, she speaks about the misogyny that black women would often face in the party, not at the higher and national level where party leaders understood the equality of women and their value in the bigger picture of the freedom struggle, but at the local level. It's important to mention that the party was 60% female, so this misogyny didn't help the party combat what was a full-scale attack by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. Asada would go on to join the Black Liberation Army, which was also seen as a threat to the racist and capitalist order of the United States. The Black Liberation Army took a similar stance to that of the Panthers, where they felt it was necessary for black people to defend themselves against this racist system, and they were prepared for all kinds of struggle, including armed. Now, when I say armed, some of you may think that's too drastic, but allow me to let you hear from the man the Panthers and the BLA were most inspired by. He'll explain to you why their being armed was necessary. We are faced with a racialistic society. A society in which they are deceitful, deceptive, and the only way we can bring about a change is to talk the kind of language, speak the language that they understand. The racialist never understands a peaceful language. The racialist never understands the nonviolent language. The racialist, we have, he's spoken his language to us for 400 years. We have been the victim of his brutality. We are the ones who face his dogs that tear the flesh from our limbs only because we want to enforce the Supreme Court decision. We are the ones who have our skulls crushed, not by the Ku Klux Klan, but by policemen, only because we want to enforce what they call the Supreme Court decision. We are the ones upon whom water hoses are turned with pressure so hard that it rips the clothes from our backs. Not men, but the clothes from the backs of women and children. You've seen it yourself. Only because we want to enforce what they call the law. Well, any time you live in a society supposedly based upon law, and it doesn't enforce its own law because the color of a man's skin happens to be wrong, then I say those people are justified to resort to any means necessary to bring about justice where the government can't give them justice. During her time as a member of the Black Liberation Army, Asada's surveillance intensified. One thing that's a common thread among black leaders, especially in the 60s and 70s, is that they all have an FBI file. James Baldwin had an FBI file that was 1,800 pages long. I ask that you consider for yourself why this country would surveil a prominent black author, poet, and playwright. What is he doing that is so worthy of monitoring? 
Asada spoke about her surveillance during her interview with Jill Noble. She also explains how this surveillance led to her initially going on the run. It began to be obvious that I, uh, I was the, the target of like the most extreme kind of surveillance that one could imagine. I mean, I would look, I lived in 138th Street. I'd look down in front of the building and there would be two white guys reading the paper. One would read the paper for 15 minutes, then the other one would read the paper for 15 minutes. I decided that I would uh, try to concentrate on my studies. I would uh, just try to go on normal life I, and then I would move. The reason that I um, was um, wanted to move because I, my whole house was booked. And how I knew that it was booked was that I was making practicing on a tape recorder something one day and the phone rang. So I put the tape recorder down and I go answer the phone and a voice says, stop making tapes, hangs up. <laughs> that was the kind of day-to-day thing I was dealing with. So um, the next thing, I mean, there was a big jump. The next thing I know, I'm walking down the street and one of my comrades comes up and says, don't go home. <laughs> don't go home. Do not go home. They just raided your house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they just raided my house and not go home. And it's like, I was like paralyzed for some hours. It it was real. And then I'm faced with a decision. The decision Asada landed on was to go on the run. The question could then be asked, well, why wouldn't she turn herself in since she didn't do anything? Well, there's a well-grounded fear that you would probably feel in that situation. If you know you're being monitored you're probably not going to go and turn yourself in when you know you've not actually done anything wrong to the system that was watching you and waiting for you to slip. Like James Baldwin said, as what the system deemed a bad nigga, you would always fear the ultimate fate the country wishes for you, which we can see from the FBI involvement in the murders of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Fred Hampton. Black liberation groups in general were treated as criminals constantly, and when the regular cops got a chance to punish members or presumed members after bringing them into custody, They usually did. These Panthers would also have to deal with trumped-up charges configured by the FBI that would subvert any kind of legal boundaries while trying to get a conviction. While Asada was on the run, she had to deal with that fear, and for the record, even after her eventual capture, Asada was never actually charged with why the police claim was the reason they ransacked her apartment, which they claimed was for the harboring of a fugitive. Now, with Asada on the run, the NYPD and the police forces in the tri-state area would stop at nothing to bring her in. Without being able to try Asada in the courts, they decided to try her in the papers. Asada speaks to this and why the FBI was so after her in the interview with Jill Noble. Their search for me. I think that they were under the the impression that I had this wealth of information that they could be out of me or um, torture out of me. I, what they did was they started a campaign to try me in the newspapers and they set up a scenario which gave me very little possibility of remaining alive for much time what they did um they began to charge me with everything 
and anything that any woman in the New York area was involved in, they began to uh, charge me for things that, that only men had been involved in. And if they, if they could not, and there was no stretch of the imagination that they could say I had been involved, what they would do is say, well, she planned it. On the evening of May 2nd, 1973, Asada and two BLA comrades, Sandiata Okola and Zaid Shakur, were stopped by two state troopers for a traffic infraction on the Jersey Turnpike. While Okola was behind the car with one of the officers, a shootout began that ended in the deaths of Asada's friend Zaid Shakur and state trooper Werner Forrester. Asada was shot in the shoulder during the shootout, and despite her prints not being found on any weapons and her shoulder being paralyzed due to the bullet she took, the story that the state stands by is that Trooper Forrester's weapon was ripped from his holster and used to shoot him twice in the head. Asada would be charged with the murder, and though the forensic evidence proves she couldn't have possibly been the murderer of Trooper Werner Foster, she was arraigned on charges that included first-degree murder. Asada was arrested and sent to a hospital, cuffed at her feet to her bed. Asada was now in the belly of the beast she was running from. Here she is, speaking on how difficult that experience was. The first week was the most difficult week. I mean, if you can imagine what, uh, when they found, what they did when they found out who I was, um, they wanted information, they thought I had it, uh, and they did everything that they could to, I mean, to get it out of me and to, you know, they didn't just beat me um, any old kind of way. I mean, they had a constraint. That was probably what saved my life. And it was what was taking place was in a hospital. They took me to a uh, suite of a hospital. It was the Johnson & Johnson suite. Uh, it's where executives go. And in order to get into the hospital room, you had to go into a living room. Um, which was attached next door, so they controlled who came in. And I was accused of killing a state trooper, and state troopers for two weeks guarded me, quote unquote. And uh, you can imagine, <laughs> you know, they did everything they could. Every day was going to be my last day on earth. Um, when they get next to the bed, they cuffed my me to the bed and. Cuffs were sticking in my legs until you know they started to swell. Um, you know where does it hurt? Her head, her head is. I mean, that was uh, part of what happened. Now they had her. After getting out of the hospital, Asada would be moved from prisons in New Jersey to West Virginia and face trial for all that she was now accused of. She was also never given proper care for that arm that was shot twice after she left the hospital. Legally, she should have still received physical therapy, but none was offered to her. In 1974, Asada would be held in custody with fellow activist Kamau Siddiqui for an extended period of time. They developed a relationship and grew closer. Shortly after their separation, Asada found out that she was pregnant. She gave birth to a daughter, Kakuya, behind bars, and it should be noted that Asada was also not given proper care during her pregnancy and was even pressured to have an abortion constantly by the prison medical staff. Throughout her stays in the various prisons, Asada was beaten and tortured often, sometimes put under 24-hour surveillance with the lights on over her, 
and was subject to random and completely unnecessary internal examinations. Now, this country likes to use the phrase innocent until proven guilty, but what we see in the case of Asada is that she was treated as guilty of a crime since the day they ransacked her apartment, and she would continuously be treated as guilty all throughout her hospital stay and through her trials on all the trumped-up charges that were thrown her way while she was on the run. Shakur went to trial seven times and was exonerated on all charges except for Trooper Forrester's murder. Regardless of her contention that the gunshot wound she sustained during the confrontation partially paralyzed her arm and rendered her incapable of firing the murder weapon. Despite forensic evidence that supports her assertions, she was found guilty of the murder in 1977 and sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years. There is much evidence to suggest the trial was not fair. Transcripts of the jury selection show at least two of the jurors expressed prejudice before the start of the trial. There was evidence also that the offices of the defense team were being bugged and materials relating to her case went missing from the home of her lawyer, Stanley Cohen, and were later found with the New York City Police Department. Asada's other lawyer, Lennox Hines, conducted an interview with Democracy Now! in 2013 where he went through just how ridiculous it was that Asada was found guilty of the murder. I wanted to ask you about the the trial itself, the only trial uh, for which uh, Asada Shakur has ever been convicted uh, in great. New Jersey. You write in the preface, it had been and is my view that it was the racism in Middlesex County fueled by biased, inflammatory publicity in the local press before and throughout the trial, fanned by the documented government lawlessness that made it possible for the, all, for the white jury to convict Asada on the uncorroborated, contradictory and generally incredible testimony of Trooper Harper, the only other witness to the events on the turnpike. There was one other state trooper, Harper, who uh, who survived uh, the the, uh, the confrontation and who was the main witness uh, against Asada. Yeah, but Harper um, ran away during the shootout, came back, and his story was conflicted and contradictory. And um, he originally claimed that he had seen her pull out a gun. Th th that's right. But there was no evidence to support that. Right. As I said, um, uh, no fingerprints on any weapon. They claimed that she fired a weapon. There were no um, arsenic uh, powder marks or, or residue on her clothing or on her hands, etc. No forensic evidence. And he, he later also uh, admitted that the original reports and testimony that he had given was wrong. It was on wrong, that. that's right. And that's yet right. she was still convicted. Yeah, she was convicted, uh, and um, uh, it was an all-white jury. The pre-trial publicity was such that people in Middlesex County and people from um, the northern part of New Jersey believed then and believe now that she is guilty. The mere fact that she was in the car meant that she was guilty. And in fact, the instructions to the jury, because there was no evidence of her doing any shooting, the instructions for the, to the jury was that if you find that she was present and supported the action of the people who did the shooting, she can be found guilty as a principal. And that is under the felony murder rule. Supporting the action of the people who did the shooting. She was in the middle of a sudden shootout on the Jersey Turnpike, was shot twice, 
and proven to have not touched a gun, but was convicted in the trial once they realized her being the actual murderer wouldn't stick for having supported the actions of someone who shot the officer. Asada then began serving her sentence when two years in, she decided that even considering the extensive surveillance within the prison and the attention on her imprisonment, she would attempt to escape. She'd be successful in her attempt, and for obvious reasons, Asada never explained how exactly she escaped. I know that's a crazy skip from her being in a maximum prison to her just escaping, but that's really all we know. What we do know is she eventually got to Cuba. I escaped. It was a clean escape. No one was hurt. Uh, I planned it as well as I could plan it, and that's all I got to say about it. How did you end up here? How can you, what can you tell us about that? Well, I got, um, I wanted to, to find somewhere where I would have a chance to be with my daughter, where I would have a chance to um, normalize my life, where I would have a chance to uh, grow, to work, uh, to contribute in some way to what's happening in this planet and try to keep up, um, to keep struggling on some level and to keep uh, active to, you know. So I decided that um, I would come to Cuba. In Cuba, Asada was granted political asylum. The purpose of the asylum is to provide protection to somebody who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of nationality because they have a well-grounded fear of persecution by the government or an entity the government can't or won't control. Lennox Hines, in his interview with Democracy Now!, further explained the idea of political asylum, especially in Asada's case. As you know, uh, for decades, the state police have wanted and demanded that the Cuban government uh, extradite uh, Asada Shakur to the United States. There is no extradition policy between Cuba and the United States. Just to deal with this in context, the Cuban government, pursuant to international law, that is, particularly the Refugee Convention, have granted Asada Shakur political asylum. Now, what is the basis for that? It is if an individual has a well-grounded fear that if they, re if they return to the country from which they left, they would either be persecuted or prosecuted based upon their political beliefs or and their race or religion. Now, this is not uh, a new concept. Uh, the, there have been numerous um, uh, individuals who have left the United States and went to foreign countries, allies of the United, of the United States, where those countries have refused to extradite them. France, for example, in the 1970s, there were Black Panthers who hijacked planes and went to France. Now, both France and the United States have extradition treaties. Not only that, France signed the 1963 Tokyo Convention, the 1970 Hague Convention, and the 1973 Montreal Convention with the United States. All of these are international agreements that, pro that 
require countries, host countries that are holding individuals who have hijacked planes to extradite them or try them. France, after conducting their own independent review of these Black Panthers, refused to extradite them to the United States based upon France's assessment that if they would be returned, they would be subject to political and racial repression. So now we have Asada Shakur, a political prisoner who was able to free herself in Cuba and has been there for over 40 years. Asada believes that all black prisoners are political prisoners in America for the simple fact that we all deal with the oppressive system. She did not separate herself from the prisoner you might consider a different form of criminal. We know that our people were the subject of organized oppressive acts like the war on drugs and mass incarceration. Asada saw no difference between conscious political prisoners like herself or unconscious political prisoners like the men and women she interacted with in the various jails she'd been in. Both political prisoners and people who are victims of the political system are products of that repressive capitalist system. Uh, the difference between political prisoners and those who are victims of the politics of the United States government, the racist, at this point, almost fascist politics of the United States government, is that political prisoners are conscious. Political prisoners are conscious of the reasons for that oppression and are clearly struggling against the system. But Asada was not the only conscious political prisoner this country found a way to put behind bars. Matula Shakur, Mamiya Abu-Jamal, Jamil Alamin, a.k.a. H. Rap Brown, and many others are all current political prisoners in the United States of America. During the Obama administration, relations with Cuba were normalized, but the Cuban government remained steadfast in its protection of Asada Shakur. Obama's successor would take issue with this protection and hypocritically demand the forfeiting of Asada while demanding Cuba release its political prisoners. To the Cuban government, I say... Put an end to the abuse of dissidents. Release the political prisoners. Stop jailing innocent people. Open yourselves to political and economic freedoms. Return the fugitives from American justice, including the return of the cop killer, Joanne Chesimard. Now, that clip is made particularly ironic because a few days ago, as I record this, this dude's supporters stormed and rioted in the U.S. Capitol building. If you watch the videos, it looks like the authorities didn't even see it coming, even though the participants had shirts celebrating the siege in the videos. I guess that goes to show you how much of a threat the FBI feels white supremacy poses against this country versus black liberation. They seem to always have an idea, even 60 years ago, what black groups are up to and feared their uprising so much they'd stop it at the roots. White uprisings, like what we saw at the Capitol building, are more so the spirit of the country showing its true colors than anything else. So, I mean, why would the FBI and other authorities try so hard to stop that? Anyway, Asada Shakur was placed on the FBI's most wanted list in 2013, 34 years after her escape to Cuba. This act by the FBI was not only symbolic of a continued desire to capture a black revolutionary hero, but a way to villainize Asada as they did in the press before her trial. In the FBI's press statement announcing her being added to the most wanted list, they named all the crimes Asada was accused of in the 70s 
but leave out that she was acquitted of all but one. And the one she was found guilty of was the government's last shot of quieting the revolutionary woman after she beat several flimsy cases. In his article about Asada, Michael Denzel Smith said, and I quote, The United States doesn't like to lose and holds a hell of a grudge. This goes beyond J. Edgar Hoover's declaring the Black Panther Party the greatest threat to the internal security of the country and vowing to eradicate them. This is the fate of anyone, particularly those with black and brown skin, who hold views deemed anti-American, which for them only reflect their status as an oppressed people. Because what of her actions qualify Shakur as a terrorist? Even if you believe she is responsible for Forrester's death, that would make her responsible for one death in the early morning hours on a New Jersey highway 40 years ago. If that's terrorism, if the definition is such that this purported crime fits, then in the process of labeling Asada Shakur a terrorist, the FBI has rendered the word all but meaningless. According to Davis, the attack on Shakur reflects the logic of terrorism because it precisely is designed to frighten young people, especially today, who would be involved in the kind of radical activism that might lead to change. But there's no one around to put law enforcement on a wanted list. End quote. Now, I'm sure what you're thinking is, what can we do to help Asada Shakur? Here it is. Recognize black female revolutionaries, especially the other unsung heroes of the history of black liberation in America. As we all know, America hates black people and America hates women. The black woman is a threat to order like no other citizen because just her existence and thriving is a revolutionary act. As we speak on our sister Asada Shakur, who still lives in Cuba today, we must also acknowledge and send our love to the other black women who are active in the revolution, such as Elaine Brown, the chairwoman of the Black Panther Party from 74 to 77, Kathleen Cleaver, the Black Panther Party's national communications secretary and the woman who helped lead the effort to free Huey P. Newton in 1970 when he was falsely imprisoned. Angela Davis, who is a pretty famous freedom fighter that you probably know. She's currently a professor at the University of California and is the author of over 10 books on class, feminism, race, and the U.S. prison system. And how could I be doing this episode today in our time without giving praise to our sister Tamika Mallory, who stands on the front lines of the Black Lives Matter movement and as I speak, is living in Louisville, Kentucky, to keep on the fight for justice for Breonna Taylor. You can find her on Instagram at Tamika D. Mallory. Please support her in everything she does. She really is, from what I see, the greatest leader to come out of our current era of black resistance to oppression. What we can also do is demand the immediate release of all political prisoners, both the known by name, such as Mamiya Abu-Jamal, Matulu Shakur, and Jamil Abdullah Al-Amin, a.k.a. H. Rap Brown, and the unknown the millions of brothers and sisters incarcerated by the injustice system in the United States. The United States government and the FBI have admitted that they had launched and executed COINTELPRO, but its victims remain in prison and in exile. We must demand the immediate recognition of the victims of COINTELPRO by our leaders. And a third way to further the movement of which Asada is a member is to educate ourselves on the current state of our people in the United States. Beyond the incremental gains that Martin Luther King Jr. told us to be wary of, what exactly is being done for us by the United States government? A government that we know has been against black progress at every turn. Yes, civil rights bills were passed, but those were only the bare minimum to avoid outright bloodshed in the streets. The masses of black people remain oppressed in this country, and we must learn and understand why that is. Sister Soldier, an acclaimed author and activist, put the challenge of black people in the Western Hemisphere better than anybody else when she went on The Donahue Show.
program. I don't think, I'm not saying we've built a lot of institutions sure. and those institutions have not been effective. The majority of millions of African youth in this country are dying mentally, dying spiritually, dying emotionally, dying academically. And you may have a program, Mr. Brown may have a program, but what we got to talk about is an American government that tracks millions of African people who don't go to your program, don't go to Brown's program. Millions of African people, not only here, but all around the world. And if we are not honest enough to say who are our friends, who are our enemies, to know what a friend is, to know what an enemy is, we will constantly be trying to get into people's parties, to shake our butts with them, to get them to like us. And that's not the question. The question is, what can we build amongst ourselves to secure ourselves from our enemies so that we will be able to survive into the future? Please add Sister Soldier to the list of black female leaders you should familiarize yourself with. She is amazing. Got dozens and dozens of videos on YouTube from the 90s to, to 2000s, everything. She's just incredible. But Asada, in an interview conducted in 1996 by Dorsey Nunn, probably the most recent of Asada interviews that I've seen, spoke to him about what she thinks all young people can do to join the movement for freedom for all oppressed people. I think that, um, you know, young people need to uh, find ways they can get together. I think they need to understand that they need to struggle right where they are. Deal with the issues that are stabbing them in the side, in the back, in the head, and deal from there. And then build a movement, whether it's at your job, whether it's on your block, whether it's in the prison you are, whether it's in wherever you find yourself at you start dealing with the getting the foot off of your neck and i think that young people whether you're in college or whether you're in prison you need to do what you need to do to make the next century belong to the people because this century has been 100 years more of slavery now I didn't want to use any audio from this final clip during this episode because I wanted to save it for the end in its entirety. Everyone, what you're about to hear after the outro is Asada Shakur's audio recording made in 1998 for Pope John Paul II during his trip to Cuba. She recorded this message after New Jersey state troopers wrote the Pope a letter asking him to call for her extradition to the United States. That wraps up this week's episode of La Soapbox. You can go to bonos.com for the full versions of all the audio clips used in this episode. That's B-A-U-K-N-O-W-S dot com. And, is, and as is the case with all episodes of La Soapbox, I'm welcoming opinions, questions, concerns, whatever you may have. Use the voice memo feature on your phone. Record what you have to say. There's no time limit. Feel free to give shout outs, whatever you want to do. Bonus episodes will come out sporadically. Don't know if I'm going to do them weekly this season. I'll play it by ear, but I'll address the thoughts from the people as they come. Just email your memo to lasoapboxpod at gmail.com. That's lasoapboxpod at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Bonos. Again, that's B-A-U-K-N-O-W-S. Or on Twitter at Baudelaire, B-A-U-D-E-L-A-I-R-E. La Soapbox merch can also be found at Bonos.com. Thank you for listening to La Soapbox. Thank you.
is Asada Shakur, and I was born and raised in the United States. I am a descendant of Africans who were kidnapped and brought to the Americas as slaves. I spent my early childhood in the racist, segregated South. I later moved to the northern part of the country where I realized that black people were equally victimized by racism and oppression. I grew up and became a political activist, participating in student struggles, the anti-war movement, and most of all, in the movement for the liberation of African Americans in the United States. I later joined the Black Panther Party, an organization that was targeted by the COINTELPRO program, a program that was set up by the Federal Bureau of Investigation to eliminate all political opposition to the U.S. government's policies, to destroy the black liberation movement in the United States, to discredit activists, and to eliminate potential leaders. Under the COINTELPRO program, many political activists were harassed, imprisoned, murdered, or otherwise neutralized. As a result of being targeted by COINTELPRO, I, like many other young people, was faced with the threat of prison, underground, exile, or death. The FBI, with the help of local police agencies, systematically fed false accusations and fake news articles to the press, accusing me and other activists of crimes we did not commit. Although in my case the charges were eventually dropped or I was eventually acquitted, the national and local police agencies created a situation where based on their false accusations against me, any police officer could shoot me on sight. It was not until the Freedom of Information Act was passed in the mid-70s that we began to see the scope of the United States government's persecution of political activists. At this point, I think that it is important to make one thing very clear. I have advocated and I still advocate revolutionary changes in the structure and in the principles that govern the United States. I advocate self-determination for my people and for all oppressed people inside the United States. I advocate an end to capitalist exploitation, the abolition of racist policies, the eradication of sexism, and the elimination of political repression. If that is a crime, then I am totally guilty. To make a long story short, I was captured in New Jersey in 1973 after being shot with both arms held in the air and then shot again from the back. I was left on the ground to die, and when I did not, I was taken to a local hospital where I was threatened, beaten, and tortured. In 1977, I was convicted in a trial that can only be described as a legal lynching. In 1979, I was able to escape with the aid of some of my fellow comrades. I saw this as a necessary step, 
not only because I was innocent of the charges against me, but because I knew that the racist legal system in the United States, I would receive no justice. I was also afraid that I would be murdered in prison. I later arrived in Cuba, where I am currently living in exile as a political refugee. The New Jersey State Police and other law enforcement officials say they want to see me brought to justice. But I would like to know what they mean by justice. Is torture justice? I was kept in solitary confinement for more than two years, mostly in men's prisons. Is that justice? My lawyers were threatened with imprisonment and imprisoned. Is that justice? I was tried by an all-white jury without even the pretext of impartiality and then sentenced to life in prison plus 33 years. Is that justice? Let me emphasize that justice for me is not the issue I am addressing here. It is justice for my people that is at stake. When my people receive justice, I am sure that I will receive it too.